Good morning, everybody, and thank you for joining us again this morning for another session of uh, SACPA. During this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging the public on issues of the day, and in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight, and the Lethbridge Herald. Today, we have a speaker, Dr. Laurie Atkin, um, the corporate and the topic will be the corporate interest in ideology shaping Alberta's universities. What do they mean for our future? Dr. Laurie Atkin is a political economist and professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Alberta. Her main areas of research and teaching are political ecology, the populist radical right in Europe, and Alberta politics. Since 2002, she has studied the formation of climate change policy in Alberta and Canada. Laurie is the author and co-author of numerous books. Her recent work has focused on the political ecology of knowledge production in Alberta's universities and on innovation policy and discourse as response to the global climate. Thank you very much today for joining us, uh, Dr. Atkin, and we look forward to your presentation. Thank you, and thank you very much for inviting me to be part of the series. So the research I want to present to you today stems from work that was done over many summers uh, leading up to the report that was published by the Parkland Institute and the Corporate Mapping Project in June 2020. And you can see the cover of the report up on the first slide here. I worked with four research assistants on this project over the years and I particularly want to acknowledge the assistance of Laura Cabral who helped with the quantitative data analysis and Laura's work was supported by the corporate mapping project which is a SHRC funded community university partnership based at the University of Victoria. If you have had a chance to look at the report you know that it is uh, large and complex. It has many sections breaking down uh, the data that we collected and analyzed and rather than trying to cover all the ground today in a short half hour I have decided to set out just the questions and some of the key findings. You can find the full report on the website of the Parkland Institute. And at the end of the presentation, there is a list of additional publications that are related to this research. Well, there's now a large body of literature that documents the processes that researchers refer to as the corporatization of universities. So this would be slide two. These processes include the list that you see up here, the alignment of university research and teaching priorities, with the current priorities of market actors. The marginalization of non-commodifiable knowledge, uh, that is knowledge that's not uh, produced for commercialization. Uh, the shift from self-government by academics to an executive style of management by professionalized administrators. The involvement of corporate representatives in university governance bodies, so this would be the boards of governors of universities and the boards of centers or institutes that are based at universities. In addition, um, we have seen the privatization of knowledge through intellectual property agreements and uh, funding agreements with uh, private 
uh, funders. Uh, these are typically confidential and uh, it's very difficult for researchers or the public to have access to these. And finally, I have included in this list the shrinking share of public funding in university budgets, which then pushes universities to search for more revenue from uh, private sources and from student tuition, which essentially uh, is a way of privatizing post-secondary education. We are seeing all of these processes being implemented uh, today in a radical fashion by the current United Conservative Party government of Alberta. And I have put a link uh, to some work I have done on what's happening in Alberta on, uh, on that slide as well so you can you can check on check that uh, later if you like um, what what I want to focus on in my talk today though is an aspect of the ways in which the societal roles of universities are being shaped that has received much less attention and that is the way in which government innovation policy and ideology are also shaping universities and why this matters, particularly from an ecological perspective. So it won't be news to you that universities are embedded in regional uh, political economies like uh, Alberta's or any other province in, in the country. And they're embedded in national and global political economies whose dominant actors and we could say uh, the structure of the economy in general, tend to exert pressures on universities to serve their ends. Uh, publicly funded post-secondary institutions are to a substantial degree policy takers, right? They are subject to the ideological discourses and developmental priorities of governments. And governments in turn typically set goals related to university-based research and development in accordance with the interests of the economic actors who have the most structural power and political influence. So the innovation funding priorities of provincial and federal funding agencies, like uh, the ones that I'm going to talk about today, are um, these priorities uh, reflect the interest of these uh, economic actors and in that sense we can say that their priorities are substantially market-driven. Now they're not entirely market-driven, there, there are other factors which shape innovation policy and funding priorities as well but uh, I will go through some of the ways in which we see quite a strong relationship between the priorities of the private sector and the priorities of the funding agencies and the impacts of that on universities and what universities do. So when we consider the political economy in which Alberta's post-secondary education institutions are embedded, uh, a political economy that since the mid 20th century has been highly dependent on the extraction and export of fossil fuels, it is not surprising that these institutions have been shaped to accommodate the interests of this economic sector. Now, I have worked at the University of Alberta since 1991, and like many others, I have heard statements from representatives of our university, like the ones you see on the next slide. Slide three. We have some quotations. Great, thank you. Uh, and so these are the kinds of statements that we have seen routinely from university administrators and deans and members of the boards of governors over time. 
In recent years, the discourse of university administrators has shifted somewhat to mention not only hydrocarbons research, but also to speak about uh, clean energy or energy innovation. So these are the new kind of buzzwords that we see a, a lot in uh, the, the speech of university administrators uh, when they talk about what kinds of research their institutions are doing, uh, particularly in Alberta. Research on low carbon sources of energy is highlighted alongside the traditional strengths of our universities in fossil fuels related energy research. Now this shift reflects both the necessity on the part of administrators at universities to acknowledge that the global climate crisis has been driven primarily by greenhouse gas emissions from the burning of fossil fuels and also the interest of researchers in capturing some of the new funding available for areas of clean energy research. So researchers also want to position themselves to be able to get some of this funding that's being offered by provincial and federal research funding agencies for uh, clean energy types of research. But what is the actual record of our leading research universities and our funding agencies over time in relation to the production of knowledge for an ecologically sustainable future. For the transition away from fossil fuels and toward a net zero carbon economy. What is considered clean energy research and does it really advance a post carbon transition or does it serve to slow down this transition effectively by allowing politicians and corporations to claim that fossil fuel extraction is ecologically sustainable. So these are questions that motivated the research that we did over a number of years and that this report uh, tried to, to answer. And, and you'll see the, these questions mentioned on slide four. Thank you. So we aim to map what I call the political ecology of knowledge production that has resulted from government funding prior priorities over the past 15 to 20 years. And the report documents the kinds of R&D, research and development, being funded at Alberta's major research universities in the areas of energy, environment, and what we call sustainability research, and classifies these areas of research according to ecological criteria. Now this allows us to see the bigger ecological picture of knowledge production and to consider the implications of this picture for Alberta's future path of development. Universities play an important role in um, helping to produce the knowledge and the knowers, the students, the, the academics and researchers and policymakers of the future and citizens who will be shaping this future path of development. So I think it's really important that we look at the kinds of knowledge that universities are producing in the context of the global climate crisis. So the next slide shows you the three broad categories on the left side, on the left column, by which we coded uh, funded research projects or awards given out by these research agencies. And it shows you as well the subcategories that we that we further broke down um, the research projects into. So the big the big categories are the environment, energy, and uh, sustainable development, which includes uh, areas that 
uh, don't necessarily fall under the first two categories in uh, sustainable agriculture or sustainable forestry or in areas of economic or social uh, science research that might be related to uh, sustainable development. Okay, so um, finding some paths of inquiry blocked by the refusal of universities and governments to provide data, we drew on the research awards data uh, that are available from the Natural Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada, the Canada Foundation of Innovation, and the Alberta Science and Research Investments Program. And you can see a list of these data sources on uh, the next slide. So in addition to those agencies, we also drew on many other sources. Um, you'll see that uh, the Natural Sciences and Re Engineering Research Council of Canada, or we call it NSERC for short, and the Canada Foundation of Innovation, both have databases of all the awards that they give out. And so we're able to go in there and then select by year and institution and keywords for the types of research that's been funded and the amounts of the research. And we use these databases to compile our, our, uh, our, data, our own databases and to do the analysis. The Alberta Science and Research Investments Program has been run out of the Ministry for Advanced Education for most of its history. And uh, it funds research by academics in Alberta. We use their annual reports, which were quite comprehensive, to create a database of all the projects that they have funded. So going on to the next slide, you see um, the number of projects or awards that we coded for each of the agencies. And you can start to see why this was such a big project. Um, in the case of NSERC, um, we had um, you know, 4,567 awards that we uh, had to then code according to the types of research that uh, they, they involved. And for the Canada Foundation of Innovation, there were 833. Uh, I won't talk about the CCMC reports uh, today. That's uh, a, a, another topic in itself. But the Alberta Science and Research Investments Program uh, gave us 159 uh, funded projects over this period of time. Now, in the category of uh, fossil fuels related research, so you might want to flick back to slide five here. Um, we included the, the table with the categories, thank you. We included technologies that aim to reduce the energy intensity or carbon footprint of fossil fuels extraction, refining, transportation, or combustion. Examples of uh, these types of technology are carbon, carbon capture and storage, uh, intended to capture emissions from coal-fired power plants or oil refineries, and the substitution of solvents for the water that's used in the extraction of bitumen by steam-assisted gravity drainage, or what Albertans know as SAG-D. We also included research on the remediation of contaminated soil, treatments of tailing ponds, uh, or land reclamation in the oil sands. Uh, these remediation technologies are necessary and important. We have the problems now, and we have to find solutions to them, but they exist to mitigate the effects of a carbon extractive model of development that needs ultimately to be replaced. In this sense, we did not consider these types of remediation uh, technologies or carbon capture and storage to be 
sustainable energy system technologies, right? So I'm just speaking to why we've included certain kinds of remediation technologies in the category of energy rather than environment for the purpose of the coding that we did. And why we didn't consider them to be um, renewable energy uh, technologies, for example, right? They're, they're kind of a category of their own. Then um, in slide eight, you'll have to leap ahead a bit here, we can see uh, more easily, I think, that research in areas such as renewable energy technologies, wind, solar, geothermal, uh, passive heating, energy conservation, low carbon public transportation, ecological economics and urban design, uh, sustainable agriculture, water conservation, integrated transition planning. All of these areas move us away from dependence on fossil fuels and toward ecologically sustainable development. Now, since time is very short, I will plunge straight into a selection of our findings. And I'm afraid I'm going to throw a lot of um, slides and graphs and figures at you for this part, but I've tried to keep this down to a, a small selection of, of the research um, from the report. The spoiler is that we found a heavy weighting of research funding from all these sources in favor of fossil fuels related R&D. This is the point where many of my colleagues go, well, surprise, surprise, what else did you expect to find? Um, and I will just say <laughs> that we, uh, we, we knew anecdotally that this was the case. Anyone who's worked at a, a university in Alberta, at the University of Calgary or Alberta over time has certainly noticed many announcements of these kinds of uh, sources of funding, research chairs, um, uh, institutes, centers that have been funded uh, jointly by governments and the, and the corporate sector, but uh, no one had systematically tried to put together the data and re reconstruct this and see what this looked like over time, and also to ask whether, in light of what we know about the climate crisis, if there has been any change or shift in the direction of the priorities uh, of what's being funded. Uh, whether there's been a shift towards renewable energies in, in any significant way, for example. Okay, so uh, in slide number nine, so we see here that of the NSERC funding to the three categories that we were investigating, energy, environment, and sustainable development research, at the universities of Alberta and Calgary over this period that you see from 1999 to 2016, 63% of NSERC funding has gone to fossil fuels related research. Only 11% has gone to alternative energies and less than 3% to sustainable development research. Going to the next slide, we see that over the whole period that we tracked NSERC funding to these two universities uh, for energy-related research, so just looking now at the energy types of energy research that were funded, uh, the data show that fossil fuel-related R&D received by far the largest share. So hopefully this graph uh, shows fairly, this chart shows fairly clearly uh, if you see uh, the fossil fuel related uh, column on the left side, uh, and that does not include the remediation research that goes on related to fossil fuels, that's the next column over. You can see that those two combined are really almost, uh, they're a very large share, about 84, 85% of funding from NSERC uh, in the aggregate over that time period. So 
um, moving to the next slide, you see that we have broken down the NSERC funding by energy research category and by the year so that we can see changes over time if there are changes, right? So the dark blue line on the top there is the fossil fuels related funding and you can see that it consistently is significantly higher. It's, it's better funded than the other categories of energy research. From 2009 to 2013, there was a significant increase in funding for research in environmental remediation for the fossil fuel sector. And this corresponds to the rise of international campaigns against the oil sands. You might recall that in 2008, Premier Stelmach um, felt obliged to start responding quite strongly to these campaigns and made a number of announcements, including the uh, large sum of money that was set aside for carbon capture and storage research, which was a central pillar of the government's climate change response. And in the next slide, you see uh, the number of NSERC funded researchers. So the other way that we tracked this was looking at the numbers of researchers working in these different fields. Uh, I have only put one slide in here reg regarding that, but this one shows you that at the two universities, uh, what researchers were actually doing who were working in the energy, in, in energy related areas. And again, you see that uh, if you look at the bottom, uh, that a, an aggregate from the two universities of 136 researchers were working on fossil fuels production and transportation types of research. And then if you go up, you can see, for example, energy and uh, efficiency and conservation type of research had only four researchers over this whole period of time. So again, you see that in terms of what's funded and the number of, number of people doing the research that the uh, priorities have been strongly skewed in the direction of fossil fuels uh, related research. So the next slide, I'll stop torturing you all in a minute with all the slides, but in slide 13 you see the Canada Foundation for Innovation uh, research findings and in these three areas again environment, energy, sustainability, at the universities, and this in this case we included Lethbridge, Alberta, Calgary, and Lethbridge. Since 1998, the largest recipient again was fossil fuels-related research, um, but followed by environmental research coming not far behind. So the CFI has tended to divide its funding more evenly between energy and environmental research, but within the area of, of en energy research, again, we see that uh, fossil fuels related research has been privileged. Uh, looking at slide 14, uh, we see that of these 833 projects that were funded at these three universities from 1997 to 2017, only eight fell into the sustainable development category. And this accounted for 2.7% of CFI spending. So innovation funding has um, you know, been quite skewed here in uh, a number of ways. And an interesting study that I found also uh, showed that, of course, this means that the funding is predominantly rewarding research conducted by men who predominate in these fields, 
right? So that was quite an uh, interesting finding, which we see um, all the way through, actually, because of um, the, the fact that most of this research is carried out in faculties of engineering and, to some extent, in uh, sciences or at the University of Alberta in the Agricultural Life and Environmental Sciences faculty. Okay, so moving to the next slide. Um, here we started to look at research chairs. And we looked at the distribution of Canada research chairs and industrial research chairs, which are funded by NSERC. Of the 25 Canada research chairs funded by NSERC since 2000 at the Universities of Alberta and Calgary, and in the area of energy-related research only, right, because they fund other areas as well, but we're only focusing on energy here, 16 of these 25 were in fossil fuels related research and by comparison only 11 CRCs were created in environmental areas. Um, that however is somewhat better than the University of Calgary um, where, um, well I didn't break that down in this slide, but um, uh, University of Alberta has done a bit better in terms of getting funding for environmental research than the University of Calgary over time. Uh, we also see on this slide that when we look at the IRCs, the industrial research chairs, and these are uh, partnerships with uh, private, the private sector that were created over the same period, a full 35 of these were in fossil fuels related research, right? So 35 out of 36, only three IRCs were created in the environmental area. And another 16 research chairs or professorships were established between 2005-2013 by Energy Corporation Endowments. And these two focused on fossil fuels related research. Uh, note also that 2005 to 2013 is a period of the boom on high oil uh, prices and high rates of investment in the oil sands. Okay, so going to the next slide, um, and um, I'm only capturing, as I said, little pieces of, of, or of sections of the report. We looked at many areas. Another one we looked at was uh, the numbers and types of research centers and institutes that have been created at these universities over, uh, in fact, we went back to 1990 looking at this, so um, now uh, about 25 years. And we found only nine research centers at these two universities in environment or sustainability areas. And these relied primarily on internal funding, what academics call internal funding, which is funding that's given out, administered by the university itself. And uh, so the decisions are made by the vice president of research or deans that have sp uh, specific funds that they can administer to support research. Um, only a handful of these environment uh, centers are in operation today. And on the other hand, we found 26 centers whose central focus is on energy, primarily the oil sands, and 22 of these are operating today. Another significant finding, uh, which again is not a huge surprise to people who know, uh, you know, the picture of universities in the province, is that not, at neither of these universities, the leading uni research universities in the province, 
is there a center or an institute for sustainable development? And this actually um, kind of sets Alberta apart from other provinces uh, where uh, there is at least one university that has a center or institute focusing on climate crisis or some aspect of sustainable development. So then if we go to the next slide, um, now we're turning to the provincial level and provincial funding agencies. And I will focus here on the Alberta Science and Research Investments Program, which we call ASRIP for short. Um, here we see again in the aggregate for this whole period for which we coded awards, the single largest recipient of energy related funding was fossil fuel extraction and energy related research received about twice as much funding as environmental science research. We also found, uh, again tracing this over time and by looking at what's funded by year, we found that energy related funding tripled over this 15 year period, while funding for environmental science fell significantly after 2009. Next slide. And this was of particular interest to me. I kept looking for research on sustainable agriculture, thinking that surely someone is thinking about sustainable agriculture as an important part of the future of Alberta in a carbon constrained world. What are we going to build an economy on? Well, funding for sustainable agricultural research from these innovation agencies is almost non-existent, at least for Alberta. Perhaps other provinces are making this a higher priority. But here we found that ASRIP funding for agricultural research was significant at one time, but it has shrunk drastically since 1997-98. Now, um, you can see this in the next slide, which gives you two pie charts. And the first one you see what ASRIP was funding in, in the period from 1997 to 1999, uh, 2000. And you can see that agriculture is actually getting 61%, this is the gray area, 61% of ASRIP funding. But then when we looked at the snapshot of what ASRIP was funding in 2010, 2011 to 2014, 2015, over this period on average, agriculture has actually shrunk to 1% of the amount of funding going to academic research. And what has increased is the blue area, which is energy, and to some extent, the orange, which is environment. So environmental science has been getting more, somewhat more funding compared to the early period, but actually this is less than it was getting in, a, in the interim. and. Uh, as I said before, energy research has really is tripled and agriculture has just shrunk to a very tiny percent. We're very near the end of the slides, thank you. So here's the last one from summarizing research um, funding from multiple sources, ASRIP and other uh, Alberta Innovates and other agencies in Alberta. And it shows you what over this period of time has received the funding and this is a rather striking result. You can just see this, which is why I put it in a chart form, that over this period of time, governments of Alberta have spent $6.4 billion on technology development related to fossil fuels compared to about 
241 million, not that much, on R&D related to renewable energies, energy conservation and biofuels, and only about 190 million on research related to environmental science, water quality and management, climate change or sustainable development. Now, 3.4 billion of this took the form of corporate tax credits for R&D in the energy sector since 2004. And another 3 billion went to fund research centers, institutes or research chairs dedicated to fossil fuels related R&D. Okay, so it's evident from these findings that the priorities of the fossil fuel industries have been transcribed into government roadmaps for innovation. Yet continuing heavy investment in R&D related to the extraction, processing and transportation of fossil fuels is clearly in conflict with the urgent need to prevent further climate destabilization. And moreover, it's in conflict with the growing recognition that Alberta must develop a post-carbon extractive economy as global demand for its bitumen exports uh, shrink. So um, I have to, given the time constraints, skip over um, some further discussion of all these findings. Um, but I wanted to come back in the last few minutes to questions of uh, what this all means for the future of Alberta and also for uh, the social functions, the, the, the mandate of our universities to serve the public interest. What, is, what are the consequences of this type of innovation model for um, the universities and for Alberta? Well, we see that this, mark, this innovation model is market-driven rather than researcher driven and that research follows the funding opportunity. So it's shaping to a great extent what people are choosing to do because they go where the money is. They train students in their labs in the same areas and this has got a big impact on, on the types of programs that universities are offering and the opportunities provided to graduate students and postdocs in particular. The model privileges technocratic approaches to complex problems over interdisciplinary approaches. And this conception of innovation clearly dovetails with the commodification of education and the corporatization of universities. It downplays the urgency of the climate crisis. It's, in my view, failing to prepare young people to deal with the complex socio-ecological problems that will define their future because to do that they need interdisciplinary knowledge. They also need social and cultural knowledge, not only technical knowledge, to deal with these types of problems. Uh, so we see that social, cultural and indigenous knowledge are marginalized uh, in this model and uh, that community-based research is not happening, it's not valued, it's not rewarded in this model. Uh, we could have a focus on academics working with their surrounding communities, whether it's the city level or the regional level, to come up with alternatives to fossil fuel development and ways of adapting to the climate crisis and so on. But that is not what's driving uh, this model of research. So I'm going to stop there. Uh, I think I've probably used up my 30 minutes and I'm sure there will be many questions about all this. 
Thank you so much for your presentation. Really wonderful. Um, we've got several questions already in the queue. And so I'll start right away with Tad Mitsui. If universities become servants of industries, where will the truly forward-looking research, where should that happen? Where should the truly forward-looking research happen? Well, I didn't want to paint a completely oppressive picture. Uh, there is resistance and there are many sectors of universities. They are not all doing the same things. One of the interesting things that I have observed over time is that um, there are quite contradictory types of knowledge being produced in universities. So you have in one part of the university research that's fossil fuel driven and supported and funded. And in another part of the research, you have people, uh, so in another part of the university, you have people who are working on uh, social movements, on alternative, you know, ec ecological economics, um, public consultations and ways of involving citizens in deliberations around climate change. So you have, um, you know, there are still uh, pockets uh, here and there in universities where people are working on questions of ecological sustainability and social justice. Uh, the thing is that what we see here is that these kinds of knowledge are, are, are actually inconsistent right they're they're contradictory they're working at cross purposes we saw an example of this in fact at the university of alberta in the spring of 2018 when the university of alberta offered an honorary doctorate to dr david suzuki a well-known canadian environmentalist well there was a reaction against that from sectors of the university that feel that they are strongly reliant on endowments and relationships that they have with um, the fossil fuel industry and viewed that as a threat to their funding base um, and, a, and a challenge to the legitimacy of the kind of research they're doing. And they very strongly um, objected to, to that honorary doctorate. There were other people in the university who said, well, this is first of all an academic freedom issue, but also you know, is that you can't define the university and what it does only on the basis of what some people in the university do. Other people do different things. So we need to be more pluralistic here. We need to be more inclusive. And um, this conflict actually, I think, demonstrates quite clearly that there's a lot of bridge building to be done. There's a lot of communications work to be done inside the university amongst these different sectors that are not communicating with each other well uh, and, and not kind of working through uh, the ways in which they can respond to the climate crisis. Uh, anyway, I'll stop at that. But. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Many thanks for your research and presentation. It may be too early to tell, but are there indications a substantial shift in research funding happened during the time the NDP was in power? Yes, that was one of the questions that we asked and is discussed to some extent in the report. Uh, the, there were some shifts that began to happen under the NDP government in Alberta. One was that the uh, em Emissions Reductions Alberta Agency, which the NDP renamed, kind of rebranded, began to allocate more of its funding to renewable energies research than it had in the past. Uh, and uh, that 
seems I, I haven't yet done the next piece of research on this, but um, I would it's quite likely that that has now shifted again. And uh, we'll we'll see what happens. Um, we, we have to we'll have to give them a, a number of years to to be able to get a sense of the direction of of the funding. But that was one one uh, shift. Um, the NDP also had an idea of economic diversification that included carbon uh, capture and reuse. And they invested quite a lot along with the federal government in uh, the carbon um, I think it was called the Carbon Management Agency, based in Calgary, and uh, that is a way of thinking about how could you use bitumen for purposes other than fuels, right? Other than combustion. Uh, now we we could have a conversation about whether that's a a good a good way of going in terms of economic diversification, but they did uh, start to allocate more funding in that direction. Um, and of course, they created the Energy Efficiency Agency and funded that from the carbon tax revenue. And that uh, doesn't, that's not funding that goes to university research, but it does show that there was a shift in, uh, I think, priorities towards energy conservation, efficiency, and renewables. Uh, you can see that in a number of ways in NDP policies. But in terms of its, it didn't have a huge impact on the priorities of the Alberta Innovates organization. I don't think they had enough time to start trying to re structure or reorganize the, the kinds of work that the uh, Alberta Innovation uh, agencies were doing. Our next question comes from um, Henny Mundell. In looking at sustainable agricultural funding, did you include the various projects and possible funding agencies involved with funding Agriculture Canada Research Centres in Alberta? Uh, agricultural research centers, um, no, because they we were looking at funding going to universities, and if those, so what we we were using were the databases from NSERC, CFI, and uh, the ASRIP reports, because those were the only sources that gave us uh, systematic data going back, you know, twenty years, and none of that went into agricultural centers. Our next question comes from Mary Shillington. It would seem universities need to offer far more public funds for research, right? Universities need to have more funding for research. Um, I'm not quite sure what the uh, questioner is pointing to. Uh, I personally support community-based uh, research or, you know, university community research partnerships. In that sense, I think universities could be collaborating much more with citizens groups, community leagues, uh, organizations that are, you know, community-based, uh, unions and so on, and combining their resources to tackle important questions. Uh, and the innovation agencies are not really oriented towards funding that types of that type of research. Uh, Shirk was uh, to some extent, but Shirk gets far less funding uh, than the other agencies. 
Our next question comes from Mark Goodall. This is also a huge problem in government research institutions. There's virtually no internal funding. Researchers must go for matching funds from industry. And then Mark Goodall goes on to say, how are research chairs chosen? Does not the university request the subject area they seek support for to fill new faculty? New faculty? Mm, those are very good questions. So uh, I have been uh, making the point here that uh, governments tend to consult mainly with uh, corporations that are they view as being important in the economy overall when they make decisions about envelopes of funding that will be dispersed by funding agencies. So they target these to different sectors and they say, well, you know, the concrete industry needs this or the nanotechnology sector needs that or forestry or whatever, you know, and these political economies change across the country. Uh, in Alberta, fossil fuels, what, did, what, you know, what are these companies telling us that, that they need in terms of research? So that is one factor and it's important. And even some, in some cases there are business representatives on the boards of these funding agencies however university administrators also have a role to play they are also consulted uh, in terms of what the funding priority should be and yes they are involved in selecting what types of research chairs they will pursue and they will they will compete for uh, and uh, and and the kinds of research grant applications that they will support so uh, administrators have a role here as well in pushing back and trying to uh, play a stronger role in determining the research priorities of their universities. Now, yes, universities are, are very much driven by sources of external funding uh, and they come um, significantly from the agencies that we looked at. And they are also, the sources of funding in certain sectors of the university also come from directly from corporations, right? So they come in, in the form of uh, research grants or endowments. And uh, so that establishes certain bonds, certain relationships between those sectors of the university and the private sector. And those sources of funding are very significant. Unfortunately, until now, universities have refused to make public this type of external funding coming from corporate or private sector donors. Uh, there is an interesting case going on in Saskatchewan by one of my colleagues there who uh, attempted to get information about sources of private sources of funding for research at her university uh, and uh, the university refused to provide it so she went through this process of FOIPing it and then having the FOIP application rejected and then appealing it to the ombudsperson and then anyway it's in court and it will be an int very interesting for the rest of us to see what happens with this court decision uh, because all many of us would like to get this kind of data from our universities to see what kind of uh, direct what how, how significant this funding is and what it's what it's funding in fact um, but my argument also in the in the report is that administrators have a have a choice to some extent. They could 
uh, try to push for uh, the reorientation of priorities of the funding agencies based on things that their own researchers in their own universities tell them are important to fund and uh, in collaboration with communities. So this isn't just a top-down process. There are also ways in which we can change the priorities of these institutions, but we do need to do a lot more communication with the public, I think, for people to understand what's happening, how research is being shaped. Why do we not have a single center in Alberta focused on transition from fossil fuels, you know, kind of helping to build policy and, and, and the concrete steps of a transition plan? This is, to, to my mind, it's critically important that we do this kind of research and that we do it in collaboration with citizens. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> I'll stop there. I could go on for days on that topic. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Keystone XL and Alberta's new interest in coal is front and center in today's news, highlighting the failure of doubling down on fossil fuels. From a poly-science from a poly science perspective, what are your thoughts? Well, uh, I have been one of those persons uh, pretty visible in uh, in media uh, on this very question now for some time. Uh, I, I obviously think that uh, coal mining is completely the wrong direction to take the province. Uh, it's heading back into the 19th century when we need to be looking towards you know the future and uh yeah i i i think that we have many alternatives to coal uh to develop uh, alberta's economy and uh that it's uh, that these proposals are radically destructive of the future economy that we need they are they are threatening the most important elements of the economies of the future, which are land, water, sun, and wind. That is what the future will be built on, not fossil fuels. Alberta has land, Alberta has sun, Alberta has wind. Water is a bit of an issue, especially in the south. Why would we jeopardize further a water supply that is already uh, suffering uh, various kinds of uh, pressures from climate change, right? So uh, that would be my view uh, on on what's happening with coal, and it's clearly not uh, it's 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 clearly not a form of economic diversification. It's a digging deeper into the existing hole of dependence on fossil fuels. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. Is there legislation that guides or mandates neutral research in post-secondary institutions in Alberta, for example, Post-Secondary Learning Act, or any other province? There's no legislation mandating research, what, re what researchers should do. What we have seen is that the federal governments who give broad direction to agencies like NSERC, NRC, uh, or the um, agencies that provide tax credits to corporations, that what they do is set out these kind of broad policy directions. And uh, the agencies then create funding envelopes for these areas of research, and then researchers go after that funding. 
So what they do is they indirectly shape what people do by deciding what gets funded and what doesn't get funded, right? And uh, we also have disproportionately uh, to start with the fact that the engineering and natural sciences receive far more funding than the social sciences, humanities, and fine arts receive, right? So the SHRC agency, the Social Sciences Humanities uh, Research Agency of Canada, gets much smaller, a smaller budget from the federal government than the NSERC does or the CFI. So that to start to start with already um, privileges certain sectors and certain types of research over others. There isn't uh, a direct, you know, there isn't a way that the government say that project won't be funded because we don't like it. They're supposed to be at a distance from decisions about which applications are actually funded. They're supposed to be committees of peers who sit in specialized areas and decide uh, on the basis of, you know, scientific criteria or academic criteria what projects deserve funding, right? Um, that said, uh, more and more of agency funding has been allocated to areas that are, that require uh, collaboration with the private sector. So as a previous uh, questioner suggested, there are uh, envelopes that you can't, you can't get money from unless you have an industry partner, right, uh, with NSERC. So there, there's been a more and more industry-driven envelopes of funding and there's been a decline in the funding for what we call discovery research or researcher driven applications where you just following the development of your academic field you you, you think that a certain area is important to, to research but that might have nothing to do with uh, the short-term interests of an economic sector right? but that type of research is is getting less funding over time and the industry partnership type of research has been getting more. So we can see that. I've done some research on that as well. You can see that trend. It's um, particularly accelerated under the Harper governments after 2006. Okay. Um, our next question comes from Leona Jacobs. Did you look, and then in brackets, in brackets or plan to look, at SHRC funding for more research of the human side of fossil fuels or environmental research, given the human toll on climate change, of climate change? Uh, we did not do a, a full-scale analysis of the SHRC database on what SHRC was funding. Uh, SHRC, for the most part, doesn't fund uh, research in energy. However, there is a new area emerging called energy humanities, which is quite interesting. And there is a cluster of researchers at the University of Alberta who are involved in the energy humanities work. Uh, and it's a network which involves multiple universities around the country. Uh, there's also the corporate mapping project that I mentioned, which isn't um, humanities based, but uh, social sciences based. Uh, and so there's this interesting critical research happening around energy questions. Um, and it it's it gets um, comparatively far less research funding than uh, the NSERC fields. It's quite um, remarkable, however, the amount of research and the quality of research that's produced from social sciences and humanities with a relatively small amount of funding. 
Um, our next question comes from Henning Mundo. After research is published, there must be linkage to the community beyond the university. Are there adequate organizations to take, to take sustainable agriculture into practice? Oh, well, um, in terms of uh, SHRC grants, there is a requirement that there be ways of communicating the research uh, to the public. You have to write that into the grant. Um, the whole question of agricultural research is, I think, hugely important. As I said before, I found it I didn't. Ex I expected to find that you know sustainable agricultural research was less well funded than the research that's driven by uh, commercial interests, like you know how to make the crops grow faster, or how to increase the yields, or how to you know raise cattle to uh, the age of uh, slaughter faster with using less feed or these kinds of projects. You know, I expected to find that there would be less, but I didn't expect it to be almost non-existent. Uh, and uh, I think that we, are, you know, governments have, are, are really strongly privileging uh, industrial agriculture and are giving very little attention to organic and, and regenerative models of agriculture. And this is a big problem. Now, uh, there's something interesting here happening right now with the UCP government. What they're pushing is what I call a P3 model of university research funding. Uh, what they've done is they've fired a lot of people who were scientists and agronomists and water specialists and so on in the ministries of agriculture, forestry, in those fields. And uh, they are transferring some money, much smaller amounts of money, to uh, some of the universities and they are saying, well, we'll give this research group a, a significant amount of money for three years. And at the end of those three years, we expect you to, to have developed a partnership with uh, an agricultural organization. It could be the Beef Producers Association or some other organization like that. And they will take over the funding so that this will become your research unit, your research program will have private sector funding and the government will withdraw, right? So we're basically again privatizing the research but what that means is that organizations that are linked to industrial agriculture are again going to be financing and directing the kinds of research that's being taken that's under, being undertaken by university researchers. Uh, I think this is a, a big concern too. I think we should be democratically deciding through public debate and discussion what the research priorities of universities should be. You know, what do we need universities to do? We should have a discussion about that in a democratic open fashion. Not that we want to tell every researcher what they have to do, but that we want research to be performed in the public interest and we want to have a clear boundary between what is in the public interest and what is in the private interest and we want to ask some questions around 
whether private industry should be using subsidized research from universities rather than putting more of their own revenue into funding research that they want to see happening, right? Okay. Um, we have five more questions. There was just two questions that just came in right at the end. I don't know what your time constraint is like. Are you okay to continue? Oh, yes, I am. I'll try to be shorter. Okay. <laughs> All right. So, um, Henning Mundell. Oh, we just had that. Sorry. Uh, Laurie Schultz has a comment. Not a question unless Dr. Atkin wishes to comment. Interesting comment heard recently that the research of U of L and U of C contributes to fossil fuel industry isn't acknowledged publicly in the context of current government is getting PS funding. Uh, PS funding? Yeah. I don't know what that is. Okay. 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 I'll move right along to the next question. Bev Mundell, how can the public help guide university research funding pursuits? Oh, uh, the universities right now really need the public uh, to tell this government what matters to Albertans uh, in, in all kinds of ways. We are, well, at the University of Alberta, we've had our, or will have had our budget cut by about a third by 2023. Now, imagine any institution taking a, a cut of that size, we will have had to lay off over a thousand people by March. And those are highly qualified people who work in all kinds of areas of support for research and students and academics. Uh, academics who retire are not being replaced. Uh, some people are leaving because the working conditions are deteriorating substantially. And the government is expecting universities to make up this lost revenue through uh, entrepreneurial activities, which universities were never really intended to perform. They're not corporations, they're not businesses, they are public goods, right? They are public services, they provide education and research. So uh, tuition fees are rising by 7% a year uh, at the moment, which means that by 2023, they will have risen by around 25%. This is a huge increase. This makes education much less accessible to our young people. Uh, they are already graduating on average with a debt of $31,000 with a BA. Uh, so, you know, education is the foundation of any society and any economy. Why would Alberta, in the midst of the crises we're facing, be cutting post-secondary education funding and making it less accessible to young people who need it more than they ever have? So, I mean, that's one thing we need to hear the public talk about is, you know, how accessible and affordable is a post-secondary education education? How much does it matter? And then what do we want our universities to do? How do we want them to work with us and for us and, um, you know, be responsive to, in, well, the University of Lethbridge, situated in the south, what should its priorities be? What what should the, it be able to help its surrounding communities 
to develop, right? The same thing can be said for every post-secondary institution in the province. So I strongly believe that universities have a mandate to serve the public interest and that they should be working with communities and thinking first about what's going on locally and regionally, what they can contribute to in the context of a global climate crisis, uh, which has large implications for Alberta, like everywhere else, how can we respond to that? And where are we going to get that knowledge, if not from universities, right? Okay. Um, our next question comes from Louis Schultz. This may be out of scope, but how would, your, how would you envision a transition from fossil fuel energy to sustainable energy? The fossil fuel switch cannot just be turned off. How would you see a transition? Oh, I completely agree with you. Um, I, I, I'll, the problem is that the longer we postpone this transition, the more radical it has to become, uh, the more difficult it becomes, right? Had we started this transition three decades ago, uh, we would be, have been in a quite different pl place now. Now, okay, having said that, you go, okay, well, thank you very much, Professor Adkin, what was <laughs> the point? Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> yes, we can make a transition away from fossil fuels. Uh, we can't do it relying solely on the market or on market-driven, market-based environmental policies. We have to look at the, the necessity of planning and the role of governments in supporting that planning. It doesn't have to be uh, technocratic work done from the top down and dumped on the rest of it. We can, do, rest of us, we can, we can think about planning in a democratic way. We can think about um, citizens' deliberations around what do we value, what kind of society do we want to, we want to live in, uh, what do, kind of world do we want our children to have? And we can use those priorities and values as guiding post for our decision-making about where to invest, right? We need to stop investing so much in the fossil fuel sector. It's very interesting to me that although this sector is constantly touted as being kind of the engine of the economy, it actually requires a huge amount of government subsidization in various forms to continue to be profitable. And that should tell us something. Why are we subsidizing an industry that uh, doesn't seem to be profitable unless its social and environmental costs are externalized, right? unless the, the public pays for them okay. now or in the future, right? So um, there are alternatives for Alberta. I would say um, sustainable agriculture, uh, value-added food production, low-carbon transportation uh, networks so we can get what we produce here agriculturally to regional markets, uh, the building up of infrastructure for water conservation, which is going to be very important for southern Alberta, uh, renewable energy infrastructure, uh, urban public transportation, urban design, retrofitting, um, human services, these are all going to be very important in the future economy. Okay, thank you. Um, our next question comes from Mark Goodall. Could you comment on the situation in research funding in the Western world versus what is happening in China? 
Will we be left in the dust in the next decade? Uh, the Western world or Alberta? Um, okay. Um, the, question, the question says the Western I, world. <laughs> the Western world. Oh, that's a big one. <laughs> well, um, let me find a thread here I could maybe deal with. Um, I think that Alberta can make this change and that we will have a more resilient economy with greater income security in the future and a higher quality of life that can also be based on less consumption of things and more free time. But we have to do that with the cooperation of the entire country. The entire country needs to help Alberta make this kind of transition away from fossil fuels dependence. So we should be cooperating with other provinces and the federal government to develop a transition strategy regionally informed, right, uh, that helps us, helps the entire country to become a net zero carbon economy as rapidly as we possibly can. The federal government's aiming for 2050. I think that's too far in the future, but that's the direction. Um, but I think we don't have to be left in the dust. Unfortunately, the orientations of the current government are digging us deeper into what, well, energy economists call carbon lock-in. Uh, and the insistence on supporting uh, the oil sands and basing our economy on the exports of fossil fuels is a dead end. This is a dead end. It, this is not a strategy which will provide employment for Albertans. These are sectors which are very capital intensive. They are not big employers and they don't have a future. So why would we be putting our eggs in those baskets instead of in the rapid buildup, for example, of renewable energy infrastructures, which employ many more people? Why are we not thinking about public ownership of these sectors so that the public and the government gets back revenue over time that it invests up front? So um, we are being isolated, I think, in the global economy by the current po policies of the UCP government, unfortunately. Okay. Our last question comes from Knut Peterson. Have you noticed a substantial shift in who and how University Board of Governor members are appointed since the UCP gained power? Well, in fact, <laughs> yes. Uh, not only I notice, but I'm conducting a research project on this. So uh, there is already some research that uh, I published on the website of the Parkland Institute, which you can go and have a look at, and there's more coming up soon on this. Uh, the UCP government elected in May 2019, April 2019, uh, has appointed um, I don't have the numbers in front of me now, but basically what they did was 
uh, replace NDP appointees with UCP appointees and uh, stack all of the boards of governors of all of the post-secondary institutes in the province with their own people. And these are either people who are close to the party uh, ideologically or donors to the party or members of the party, uh, people who run for the party, etc. Uh, people who ideologically uh, think in very much like um, the government. And this is uh, a, a really uh, significant issue because what this amounts to is the imposition of direct control by the government over the universities. They now have majorities on these boards. We see this with the University of Alberta. They have appointed 14 people to our board since they were elected. They constitute a majority of the representatives on the board. They can do this because of the nature of the Post-Secondary Learning Act, which should have been reformed and needs to be reformed. And uh, this is uh, one of the things they have done. Uh, yes, so they have, they have stacked not only the boards of the universities, but all of the public agencies in the province have been reconstituted by the UCP. And uh, I think this is a, a huge democratic issue. There should be more diversity. There should be more pluralism. In, and the stakeholders in these agencies should have a voice in who represents them. Excellent. That was it for our questions. Uh, lots of thank yous from everybody in the thread. Um, certainly on behalf of SACPA, we thank you very much for your time and your presentation. Um, before we end the live stream, do you have a take home message for, for our viewers? Well, I would just say again, and thank you for that question that came up earlier, is it's extremely important for citizens to tell governments what they think universities should be doing, how what kind of public uh, role they should be playing. If they want the universities to communicate better with them, they should be telling university administrators and governments that. Uh, and, uh, you know, that is a part of the counter pressure against this innovation model that will create more space within universities to do the kind of research that many of us want to do, which involves collaboration and, and well, what they call outreach. I just call like communication, <laughs> cooperation, collaboration with the public, uh, making our research relevant to um, to people and, and uh, giving them a, a stronger view inside what what happens inside a university and why it matters to the public and and to uh and to all albertans and why what we do in universities is so critical to the future of our young people which is something that you know concerns me a great deal okay thank you very much and uh thank you everybody for timing in um our next speaker our speaker next week thursday is gary marr um uh, and he'll be speaking on setting a broad table of energy and environment, how there has to be a merger of the two in order to be successful, which seems like a good follow up in a way. Um, and uh, with that, we'll end the live stream today. And thank you, everybody, for coming in. And thank you again, uh, Laurie, for joining us.